Welcome to another bonus episode of uh, Food for Thought, uh, brought to you by, and thanks to our sponsors, uh, Missouri Mearsham, Cornell and Deal, SmokingPipes.com, and Savinelli. Hopefully this will... um, yeah, hopefully this will answer some questions for you because my guest for uh, this week is a retired Los Angeles County Superior Court judge. Uh, my guest has also traveled the world in uh, training judges in uh, in emerging democracies and how to run a courtroom. And uh, my guest is also uh, the one who, I guess kind of taught me how to ride a horse but then i've known you for a very long time because my guest is my aunt judge judy sherlin yes the real judge judy uh aunt judy welcome to the show thank you (laughs) all right so uh, yeah i think you were the first one that put me on a horse probably so you were about three years old yeah yeah, and the the saddles were more comfortable when I wore diapers. <laughs> I I think you might have been out of diapers by that by that time. <laughs> but uh yeah, you you actually got pretty good at riding. Uh you were at the very beginning you were riding in front of me on the saddle and then you were riding behind me holding on and then at one point you said to me, "Aunt Judy, I think it's time for me to have my own horse." And so the fellow who owned the stable let you ride one of his horses i think you were pretty good at it oh but he wouldn't let you wouldn't let you ride with a saddle until you learned how to ride bareback and so you rode bareback for maybe i don't know several months maybe even a year before you were you were allowed to ride on a kid's saddle (laughs) that that explains the sore butt sometimes <laughs> but you are you, you know I, I always tell people my aunt was a my aunt was a judge because you're now retired but uh when did you when did you get appointed to the bench in 1985 june of 1985 and for those that don't know give us the um uh, give us the the pedestrian uh process of how does one become a judge well, it, it depends on what it depends on what court and what state you're in. Um, federal judges, those are judges of the United States courts, are appointed by the president and confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Um, and typically, the trial judges um, in those courts are people who are nominated by. The senators from the state, if there's a senator from the same party as the president, or um, by a high-ranking political type in the state of the president's party, if both the senators are from the opposite party. The states all have different systems. Um, In California, we have kind of a hybrid system where... By trial judges, by law, are elected, but the governor has the power to fill any vacancy that occurs any time other than a short period before the election. So because most judges don't time their deaths or <laughs> elevations to other courts or their retirements to coincide with that period, 
most of those judges, the trial judges in California, get appointed by the governor first and then have to stand for election every six years. Um, the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court justices in of the state of California are um, are appointed by the governor, but then they have to be confirmed by a thing which is called the Commission on Judicial Appointments, um, which confirms them to three-year term, uh, to to uh, twelve-year terms, and then uh, they have to, at the end of the twelve years, they have to stand for election in what's called a retention election, which. On the ballot, it just says, shall so-and-so be retained as a judge of the Court of Appeal? When Superior Court judges, our trial court judges, are um, are up for election, uh, people can actually run against them, and those are, con- those are contested elections. But that happens very rarely. And so, like, I was, I was appointed in 85. I had to run in 86. 92, 98, 2004, and I would have had to run in 2010, but I actually retired in 2009. But my my name never even appeared on the ballot because no one ever chose to run against me. They were all scared. Well, something (laughs) like that, I guess. (laughs) It's also in Los Angeles County because the county is so big, it's very expensive to run, so... Um, they tend not to run unless they really are mad at a judge sometimes or they just want to get on the bench and they pick somebody who has a a foreign-sounding last name or something and uh, spend a lot of money to, to, to run for judge in a big county like Los Angeles. So you got you are a, you are a practicing lawyer and you got appointed by governor duke magian correct yeah and that was to that was to fill a specific vacancy um and and i'm assuming they they picked you because of your record and your and they yeah why 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 else did they choose you why'd they pick my aunt (laughs) before before i went on the bench i was um, the I guess you would call me a lobbyist, although my, that wasn't my formal title. I was the the representative of California Women Lawyers Association um, to the governor's office, and my job was to lobby for women who wanted to be judges. And uh, you know, I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to get appointed at some point, but there was kind of a, a unique situation where um, the legislature of California had created 18 new spots on the Los Angeles Superior Court. And um, the govern- so by that time, we had, I had done enough lobbying so the governor and his appointment secretary recognized that if they wanted to keep uh, a pipeline flowing of women who were willing to apply uh, for judgeships every time they appointed some judges, they needed to have a woman's name in there. And when these uh, these appointments came up, um, the new seats, um, they were looking for women who they could appoint who uh, had not been on the lower court 
because they had elevated all of the women on the lower court that that they were interested in, that the previous governor had appointed. But the women that they had appointed to the lower court, which we called the municipal court, hadn't been there long enough to to test to see if they wanted to elevate them. And so they were looking for women who they thought they could trust just going to the superior court. (laughs) And I had been lobbying this, the governor's appointment secretary, and we had been traveling around the state doing what we called So You Want to Be a Judge programs to educate people on the process. So I'd spent a lot of time with him, and he felt he could rely on me. So I was one of a few women who they reached out to and said, now's a good time for you to apply. And I did, and I got it. (laughs) And you got it. Now, and I got it. Is there so you so you went to law school to become a lawyer? Is there separate judge school that you go to to learn how to run a courtroom? Well, the once in in California, once you go, once you get appointed, or if you happen to be one of the small number of judges who get elected, um, you go in the first like three months to what's called a new judges orientation. Um, and there you get kind of the basics. And then um, within the first two years, you're supposed to go to what we call the judicial college, which is a more um, extensive uh, education on being a judge. Some courts also have their own education programs. The Los Angeles Superior Court now has its own um, education um, process where new judges um, go around. They have some training courses that they take, and they go around and they they shadow other judges doing a variety of assignments um, for several weeks before they actually sit in uh, and and go into a courtroom. I didn't I didn't have that benefit. But the other thing is that we have a lot of what are called bench books, which are books telling you, you know, what you need to know to do a family law family law assignment, or what you need to do to know in you know probate or other kinds of assignments. There is there is though. Um, a national judicial college, which happens to be in Reno, Nevada, and that uh, college offers classes, new judges orientations, and other substantive courses for judges from smaller states that don't have enough judges to, you know, have their own uh, judicial education, you know, hold judicial education programs. And they picked Reno because of its practice in divorces? Uh, no, I think they picked Reno because there was some guy who was willing to, from Reno, who was willing to give them a lot of money to put it there. <laughs> so, so it's safe to say that the, the education of the judge can vary all the way, you know, by county and by city and by state, all the way across the country. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And the election process varies. There are... You know, there are states, um, uh, Massachusetts, for instance, is just like the federal system uh, where they're appointed and and uh, confirmed and then they, they have life tenure, which means they can't be removed unless uh, 
uh, unless they're like almost impeached. Uh, but then there are some which are purely political. In Texas, for instance, the judges are all elected in in partisan elections, and um, it's it's even compounded by the fact that uh, in Texas, apparently, you can go into the voting, you know, into the voting booth, and you can just vote a straight party line. So uh, when they had machines. Uh, the, the old machines, you could just flip one switch and vote for all Republicans or all Democrats. And um, one of the interesting little factoids is that when um, when Ann Richards, who was a Democrat, won the governorship, um, she was so popular that it wiped out all of the Republican judges in Harris County, which is Houston. Yeah just because so many people voted a straight party line. Wow. Talk about coattails. It it really ranges. The states are all, you know, all over the map. Some of them have hybrid systems, um, like California, some places. uh, There's just just all different kinds. All right. Now, let's get into actually being a judge. Um, Okay. Can can you tell me where the tradition of everybody rising in the courtroom when the judge comes in, where— where did that begin? Oh, that's probably old England, um, because so many of our of our traditions came from the old English system. Um, one of the th- one of the, the the traditions that I uh, that I think is kind of amusing is that um, you know we have an area in the courtroom called the well, and that's the area between the bench. And where the lawyers sit, yeah. And traditionally, nobody goes into the well unless they ask permission of the judge. And the historical uh, background of that was that you know now courtrooms are designed however they're designed and they're different sizes and everything. But the traditional, um, the traditional size of the well was hold if you held out two people holding out their arms with a sword and the the length from the two swords with the tips pointing the tips touching <laughs> and the reason for that is that in old england the judges used to all ride out from london to all these you know all the different areas in the in the country and so they were strangers and they were putting on trial people in the um, in the communities who might have, you know, supporters and friends and relatives who would come to these trials. And so the, um, the idea was nobody could get closer to the judge than the two swords out, outstanding because that was the way they could protect the judges from the, <laughs> from the local people was the judge couldn't. I guess stab them or something, or get into a duel with them, or something like that. And, and so the, I thought that was pretty cool. Thus, the reason we have bailiffs. Well, exactly. Yeah, the bailiffs' charge is the bailiffs' charge in the original was to protect the judge. Now it's to protect both the judge and jurors and everybody in the courtroom. All right. So you so you you become a judge. Um, one. What was your favorite? What was your favorite part of being a judge? Wow, 
um, just all of the fascinating people interaction and learning about um, about people's lives. And you, you do that in either criminal or civil. It's just a different aspect of people's lives that you learn about and can really have an effect on, yeah. um, you know, helping people who've been harmed, uh, take it, you know, making people who have harmed others um, pay for it in a sense. In, in civil, it's usually monetary, and in criminal, it's usually by, um, you know, whatever sanctions you put on them, put, putting them in jail or prison or whatever. Did you ever get to throw anybody in jail for contempt? I did not. And um, that's an interesting question. A lot of judges feel, you know, that contempt is their first, their first uh, defense or their first weapon. I had the opposite, um, the opposite reaction. Uh, the best advice that, that I got when I became a judge, one of the judges who I had a very nice relationship with as a lawyer, I had tried to, tried my first case in his court and we became friends. And he, his father had been a judge and a, a very well-respected judge out here. And he said to me, I'm gonna give you the advice that my father gave me on the day that I, um, that I became a judge. You can consider yourself when you retire that you've had a successful career if you have never had to hold anybody in contempt because if you have to hold somebody in contempt, that shows that you have failed at all of the other weapons that are available to you, all of the other techniques that are available to you to keep control of the courtroom. And so I was very proud of the fact that when I retired, I could say I had never had to hold anybody in contempt. Did you get close at all? Um, yeah, <laughs> I did. Um, there was one time that I can remember when I was just so angry with a particular lawyer. Um, I thought he was being rude and, and um, he was, he, he kept interrupting me, and he was just awful. And I decided it was that I was losing my temper and that it would have been my temper that would have caused me to hold him in contempt. So I just decided, I just said, we're taking a break. And I stormed off the bench and then went in, the, went in my chambers and sort of calmed down and came back out and told him that I thought we should recess for the day and come back the next day. And perhaps he should come back with a better attitude. <laughs> and and uh, he did. It worked. Do you remember, did you decide for, did you decide in favor of that lawyer or against him? I, you know, I don't even remember what it was about. <laughs> it wasn't during a trial. It was during some pretrial motion or something, but I, I don't remember what I did, but. Um, I just remember feeling so angry with him and just deciding to get off the bench before I did something I'd regret. <laughs> <laughs> so did you also, did you work with juries, with jury trials as well as judge trials? 
Oh, yeah. In fact, I love doing the jury trials. I, I mean, I, I just, that, those were my favorite, you know, I, I preferred them a lot over the, what we call court trials here, which is where the judge makes the decision. Because I, I just love dealing with people that, you know, um, people tend to um, not want to go to jury service. Many people do. They, they try to get out of it. But most jurors, once they've sat on a jury, at least the ones that I dealt with, once they sat on a jury, they felt really good about the service that they did. Um, when you think about it, you know, jury, jury service is the when, – when people make decisions in jury cases – it's probably the most important decision they have made in their lives that doesn't affect them. It affects somebody else. And they take it really seriously. Um, so I, I have great respect for the, for the jury system. I, and, you know, in, in all the years, I did a lot more jury trials than I did uh, court trials. And in all those years, I think the jurors only got it wrong, you know, I think, well, let's, let's put it this way. I think the jurors get it right like 95% of the time. Um, so, they're, so they're pretty intuitive. And uh, when I was on a, uh, when I was on the jury, I was, I was the alternate. So I had all the responsibility of nothing. Um, mm -hmm. But I did get to hold crack cocaine in my hand for the first time ever. Oh, well, you know, I, I just think the jurors tend to tend to get it right. Now, sometimes they get it right for reasons, you know, it's sort of sort of like, uh, I think it was Mark Twain who said, people who like sausage should never watch it be made. <laughs> um, it's the same thing with the deliberations. You know, sometimes they will do things or, from what I hear, you know, take things into consideration that maybe... Um, they shouldn't or or seem irrelevant to me but um but they tend to get it right i i think it's you know that expression the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts yeah i think that's that really comes into play with jury trials the the combined common sense of 12 people um is is pretty amazing I had a I had a trial I, I learned a lot from jury trials. Um, I had a trial one time where uh, the trial actually lasted a year. It was a criminal case. It was a doctor who was charged with nine counts of murder, all arising out of gross medical negligence in the delivery of babies. And um, one of the issues in the case, he had been kicked out of all the hospitals. And so he would come and deliver your baby either in your house or in a storefront where he, uh, you know, he had a little clinic. And one of several of the babies who died um, died because the doctor inappropriately used a drug called Pitocin, which is mm -hmm. a drug that's used to induce labor yep. and uh, the the medical standard of care is you only use it you know when it's medically necessary and you only use it with an electronic fetal monitor and um and the reason you do that is if the baby goes into distress when you're using that 
pitocin and it induces the the labor um, if the baby goes into stress you have to stop the pitocin immediately and do an emergency c-section and of course this guy couldn't do them in your home or in his clinic and at one point he had ordered an electronic fetal monitor it turns out it was delivered on the day that the district attorney was um, executing a search warrant. <laughs> and so this delivery guy shows up with this monitor. He wants somebody to sign for it. The, the um, investigator who's from the DA's office who was supervising the subpoena, you know, the execution of the subpoena, said to the doctor, if you sign that, we'll confiscate it. The doctor said he wasn't going to sign it if it was just going to be confiscated because you still have to pay for it. And so the delivery guy took it back. When we got to the closing arguments, and, oh, and by the way, I should mention that three baby deaths occurred after that incident Ugh. while the DA's office was still gathering evidence. And in the, in the closing arguments, the um, the the defense lawyer argued that you, if you're going to convict my client of any of these, you shouldn't convict him of these three after he had the monitor because he would, um, you know, he, he they wouldn't have died if he had a, a monitor. And of course, the DA argued, yes, you should convict him. He was still responsible for them. Well. After the after the case was over, and I had done every you know the the sentencing had occurred and all the post trial motions had finished, I was totally finished. One of the jurors had asked me if he could come talk to me about some of the things that happened when they weren't there, because he was a screenwriter thinking he might get <laughs> a screenplay out of this. He never did, by the way. But we had a whole discussion, and he said, you know. Um, that I learned a lot. One of the things that I learned was it doesn't take a college degree to have common sense. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, do you remember this Mr. So-and-so? And he told me his name. And this fellow was a janitor at the post office. And so, you know, I mean, this is not a well-educated, high-end kind of guy. But he said that he brought a, he, that that juror, the janitor from the post office, while they were deliberating, said, I don't know why the two lawyers spent so much time arguing about that, because the defendant, even if he had used the fetal monitor, couldn't do a C-section in somebody's home or in his office, and he couldn't send them to the hospital, because... In addition to the nine counts of murder, there were also several insurance fraud counts. And one of the insurance fraud was that when somebody would come to him, you know, a couple would come when, you know, when she thought she was pregnant in the, you know, six weeks or six week or something like that. Um, he would bill the insurance company for the birth of that baby. And so this, this janitor said, you know, even if the baby went into distress when using the Pitocin with the fetal monitor, 
he couldn't send them to the hospital because the hospital would bill their insurance. The insurance would say, wait a minute, we already paid for that baby <laughs> seven months ago, and he would have been found out. And that was a really smart, really common sense thing. So you, you just learn so much. You know, we think of education being that, you know, you got to have a college degree for this, you got to have a whatever, but you don't have to have a college degree to have common sense, and that's what you get <laughs> with jurors. Yeah. Uh, we're being in L.A., and you, you mentioned a, a screenwriter, uh, were there mm -hmm. any celebrity brushes that you can talk about? Well, I had um, I had uh, Kim Basinger in a trial. I had Lonnie Anderson in a trial. I had Rod Stewart in in one of the trials that I did um, more recently. I actually had George Takai um, <laughs> in had a case in my court and. Uh, it was sort of between his his famousness, you know. It was after um, what was it after Star Trek? Yeah. But before he became this this cultural pop hero that he is now. <laughs> um, and there were there were some others. I can't I, I can't remember. But those were the those were the biggies. And and I um, would assume all these celebrities were you know calm, even-headed, and uh, very pleasant in the courtroom, right? Not particularly. Okay. All <laughs> right. Well, 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 the the smartest, the the one who seemed to be the smartest of them all of the of them was uh, Lonnie Anderson. Huh. She she's pretty on the ball. Um, she's she's a smart woman. Um, Ron Stewart, Rod Stewart was, I would say, he, he he wasn't in the courtroom very much. You know, in the civil cases, the defendant doesn't have to be there all the time. Yeah. So he was only there uh, during the jury selection and then during the time when he actually had to testify. It was about a concert tour that he had agreed to do and then pulled out of. Um, but one of the funny things that happened, a lot of funny things happened in trials, by the way. Um, one of the funny things that happened in that trial, um, some, a friend of mine, some friends of mine have you know, little kids and, um, the, the son, used, the, the mother and son used to come to my courtroom. And so the little girl who was considerably younger asked, well, when do I get to go to judge Judy's courtroom? So the mother and I set up a, a date that the courts were in session, but the schools were out. I think it was like Veterans Day, that holiday in, in, um, in uh, November. And, um, and she brought, the, she brought the, the brownie troop, this little girl's brownie troop. So they're nine years old. And they, we set that date up like three months in advance. But it just, so it just was total coincidence that Rod Stewart, happened to be I was in the Rod Stewart case when they came and he happened to be there that day so um the kids got there at like 10 50, when we take our morning break because you know these are nine-year-olds not going to be able to sit through a whole day of trial so they got there just before we took the morning break and then they sat for the you know for the hour hour and 15 minutes that we had after the break, but before lunch, and then they then they went to lunch and then went home. 
So at the break, I went out and I told them, you know, after everybody had gone out of the courtroom, I went and told them a little bit about the case and what they were going to see. And then when we broke for lunch, after everybody left the courtroom, I invited them into my chambers because I always had a lot of interesting little doodads from, you know, from the different trips that I had taken and all that kind of stuff. And as we were walking into the, to the chambers from the courtroom, one of oh, I had said during the break, I had said to them, do you all know who Rod Stewart is? And, and one of them said, yeah, my grandma told me who he is. <laughs> another one said, yeah, my daddy told me who he was. Um, but then as we were walking into my chambers from, you know, uh, at, at the lunch break, one of them said to me, so was Rod Stewart in the courtroom? And before I had a chance to answer, one of the other ones said, yeah, he was the old guy at the end with the dyed spiky hair, <laughs> which was which was absolutely accurate and a much better description than I would have given. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, it was, what what part what part of being a judge did you not like at all? There, uh, you know, I can't really say that there were parts that I didn't like at all. There were parts that were harder than others. For so, example, well, you know. Um, I actually had some death penalty cases, but those decisions weren't the hardest ones. The, I think the hardest decisions that I had to make um, regular, well, regularly during the five years that I sat in the criminal court was what to do with a defendant who either pled guilty or was, usually it was a, a, a guilty plea on a drug case where it was somebody who was 18 years old, it was their first offense. And there were basically two types of people, uh, two types of usually guys um, who I faced this problem with. One type was the type that if you put them in jail, whether it's for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, they'll just come out worse because they'll be hanging around with a bunch of guys in jail who are, you know, have committed all different kinds of crimes and they'll just come out with, you know, being educated in more techniques um, and just end up being worse. But there were other guys who, if you didn't put them in jail for the 30 days, 60 days, whatever it was, they would think they could get away with it and therefore reoffend. And trying to figure out which were the guys who needed a taste of jail to get them on, on the straight and narrow, or were the types that if you put them in jail, they'd just come out worse and, and you'd, you know, you'd ruin them, yeah. was probably the hardest decision that I had to make. That, yeah, that'd be no fun. Um, yeah. All right. So I mentioned that you. We've only got a few minutes left, but I've, I mentioned that you've traveled a lot and worked with judges in emerging democracies. You want to just rattle off briefly the countries and where all you've been? 
Well, I was in Russia um, in the early 90s, six different times when Boris Yeltsin was starting to do jury trials again for the first time since the Bolshevik Revolution. I was in, um, I'm trying to remember in order, Latvia, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Georgia, Moldova, um, those were the ones in Eastern Europe. Um, oh, Serbia. Um, in the Middle East, I was in Iraq uh, twice. I w- I've been in Jordan, Qatar, um, Oman, uh, Libya, Tunisia, Morocco. Um, I've been in Peru, Chile, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Ecuador, and I, I'm sure I, I'm probably missing some, but I, I don't remember. So, which. so that's why that's why you got a bunch of frequent flyer miles. Um, I have, yeah, I have lots of frequent flyer miles. <laughs> uh, last question. Oh, did I mention Czech Republic? I've been to Czech Republic lots. Yeah. Um, I do. I. Done some of these programs through the State Department, but a lot of them through the American Bar Association's Rule of Law Initiative. All right, last question, and this one we we didn't prep for this. There there was no uh, there was no pre-trial discussion about any of this. Okay. Um, do you have a do you have a favorite court-based movie or TV show that you think is most like what it most like real court? Oh, well, until you got to what's like most like real court, I was going to say my favorite, my, my very favorite um, courtroom movie is, is my cousin Vinny. Okay. I, that's which, real. Which they, yeah. And they, they actually get, I mean, other than the fact that the, the relationship between him and the judge and it being, you know, him being so, uh, shall we say dishonest about his stature as a lawyer, um, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's not off, not, not off, uh, too much. Uh, some of the expert, you know, some of the expert witnesses, I had an expert witness in a case that were, that was a, uh, a, a mechan- a mechanical engineer, mechanic, something, and it had to do with, with machines. Um, and it was a woman and, um, some of the data shows that jurors actually believe women jurors are more likely to believe women who are experts in areas that are not typically women because they figure women have to fight harder to be an expert <laughs> to become recognized as an expert in those fields so so marissa they tomei knowing feel, by the way, knowing cars Interestingly, they also feel like women are less likely to lie about their expertise than men are. So <laughs> that makes put that in your put that in your pipe and smoke <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Well, we yeah no men don't lie. Trust me, never. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Is there a, is there a uh, movie or TV show or something like that that is kind of real? court based or you know or or really well, or works if, for you if you remember la law yeah. um they used to really try and get it right 
um, subject to uh, you know the, their dramatic purposes. I used to always joke that I that I craved a closing argument like they did on L.A. Law, which was maximum <clears throat> maximum about forty five seconds, <laughs> <laughs> which which doesn't really happen. But they really tried to get things right. Um, I, you know, another one of my favorite trial movies, by the way, is Judgment at Nuremberg. Which is about the about the Nazi trials in Nuremberg after World War II. That's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, yeah, and those and those trials took a whole lot longer than two hours. Yep, yep, <laughs> absolutely. Well, there you go. Absolutely. A little uh, a little inside into uh, what it's like to what it's like to be a judge and and wear the robes. Um, so uh, once again, thanks to smokingpipes.com, Cornell and Deal, Savinelli, Missouri Mearsham, and uh, thank you very much to my aunt, the, the original real Judge Judy. <laughs> and that's just more food for thought. <laughs>